Welcome to Light Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined by Meredith. Good morning. Good morning. I have a very important question for you. Yes. That just occurred to me uh, because I was listening to a podcast and they were discussing it. So when you were a kid, did your parents teach you specific etiquette for how to answer the phone? And if so, what were you told to say? Uh, no, I don't think that we had anything that was super specific to it. It was like, hello. And then, uh, but we didn't say like, hello, this is the Clarks or, you know, anything like that. Here's what I was trained to say. Are you ready? So ring, 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 ring. I pick up the phone. Kilkenny residence, Allison speaking. How may I help you? That is an insane thing to train a child. Yeah, that was what I was trained to say. That's so many words for a young person. But I did it every time I crushed it. Oh, I mean, incredible. No wonder you're such a talented script writer. So, but apparently we were like the last generation where we had any kind of like little script etiquette that we were supposed to deliver anytime the phone rang. But there were some really strange ones, like depending on region, depending on country. Sometimes you uh, said the full address. Of you said your full address. So ring, 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 ring. Hello, 123 Main Street. Like as a sort of, instead of saying Kilkenny residence. uh, Sometimes there was another one that I was like, that's really strange. I think it was just like the area code. But yeah, all different kinds. Huh. Yeah, we were never so formal that that was a specific thing that we were supposed to say. Although plenty of people I knew did say usually things like, hello, blank residence, mm-hmm. um, but not a like, this is blank speaking. I think we should bring back Ahoy Ahoy. I would take that. Yeah. That was originally supposed to be the instead of hello, which we all take for granted now. Like, of course, you would say hello, but somebody had to come up with that idea. Uh, I mean, the idea that we might have been, we might all be saying ahoy ahoy. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, you're right that we are the last generation to do this because everybody got cell phones immediately after we left our houses. Here's how I answer the phone now if somebody calls me on my cell phone. Hello? I'm so <laughs> afraid anytime I get an actual phone call because it's either, it's never good news. It's right. either you're going to have to deal with a telemarketer or something awful has happened. Yes. Uh, or if it's somebody that you know is calling, you just don't answer. Yeah. Although I think if any of my, my friends called me, I would pick up cause I would know it's an emergency. That's fair. If anybody's calling me, like shit has gone down. Cause everybody texts, like, why in the hell are you calling me? Like you obviously need something very, very badly <laughs> if it's an actual <laughs> phone call. I yes, it's uh or if I'm, it's you yes. at like midnight, I'm like, oh Meredith is tipsy. <laughs> yeah. But I do my best not to call you. Maybe I'll text you. You don't do it anymore. You used to do it, and I finally had to be like, just so you know, I, I hate talking on the phone. You were like, got it. Yeah, and I think that's fine. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm I was a cusper, so like I'm an elder millennial, so the idea of talking for a long time on the phone is horrifying for uh, me. The only person I talk to on the phone a long time is my mom because she's a boomer and it's like, she's not going to text me, you know? Yeah. And I don't mind. We've got a good good vibe with the uh, voice memos back and forth to each other. And we do talk 
all day, every day. So. so you were the one who turned me on to voice memos and it's like a fucking revelation because it's nice because you get the, I get to hear your voice, you know, mm-hmm. but there's like a limitation for how long I have to hear anybody talk, which like. Or come up with things that, to say and you have the chance to take a little yes. bit of time to think through what you want to respond. Yes, exactly. So the conversation is the best possible version of yes. what you're trying to do. It's all the good of a phone call with none of the bad, which is just like. Amazing. And also sometimes I have something like complicated to tell you and I don't want to type paragraphs. And mm-hmm. also sometimes like I feel like a lot is said in the inflection of my voice or like how I say things and I know it won't come across uh, in text. So in, th- in that sense, I think voice memo has filled a void where phone calls used to be. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> So for you. So, okay. Thank you for that little trip down memory lane. Yeah. I'm curious if you were trained to answer the phone in a very specific way. I want to hear from you. This is obviously older people, I think, at this point, because, you know, Gen Zers on your cell phones, probably, although I don't know, maybe you guys have like your own thing that I don't know about. So yeah, let me know. Um, so I obviously wanted to talk about the fact that, uh, the WGA, uh, got this amazing deal. Everybody's, I think, back to work now officially because they voted on it. Um, and yeah, I won't get into like the minutia of what the deal was, but suffice to say, I did read it. Uh, they got a lot out of that. <laughs> like, yeah, I was really impressed. I was really, really impressed. We're like, I knew it was going to go well just because, you know, the the people in charge of the negotiation uh, are great and uh, were very passionate about what they were fighting for. They knew it was a big fucking deal. So I knew that they were going to win and I knew that they were probably going to win big, but I did not know they were going to win that big. Like they re- I think they got everything they asked for unless there's something I didn't know about. But obviously the big ones were like minimum numbers and writers rooms, um, compensation, uh, for episodes written and AI was like a huge, huge, uh, deal. And they got everything they wanted on all those fronts. So yeah, I just, um, congratulations to the WGA. Uh, obviously the SAG is still on strike. So if you're able to, to go to any of those picket lines or lend financial support to the striking workers, obviously continue to do that until the strike is over, over. But congratulations to the WGA. I know. We'll actually be able to have production of original scripts protected a little bit <laughs> from <Robots>. never ending. <laughs> Look, I am I am afraid of robots, unless it's the New York City subway robot, in which case... I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of you, but also I hope somebody throws you on the tracks. Yeah, well, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily self-preservation in the face of a terminator. That's just mm-hmm. it it has a punchable face. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so dumb. Like I don't know if anybody's seen the TikTok videos of this stupid NYPD robot, but it's just it's first of all it's just dumb. It's dumb. It's like a goofy little like what does it look like it kind of looks like an air freshener like rolling around 
Um, yeah, or like a really fat weeble. You know those yes. toys from our childhood Fair where that. you Fair can that. punch them and then yes. they'll pop back up again? Yes. Looks like that. And it makes weird sounds. Like it has these chimes and stuff, but there's a bunch of people on TikTok like heckling it basically. <laughs> like <laughs> – Trying to interview it, which is funny. But yeah, I mean, th- that thing is going to be vandalized and broken within a week. I hope. I hope. Um, have you seen, I feel like every week there's a new terrible evolution in AI. And right now, oh, maybe you don't know this because you're not on Twitter anymore. I know. And it's the greatest thing I've ever done. Yeah. So if you listeners are still on Twitter and you're feeling like you just don't want to do it anymore, Consider just not doing it anymore. Although it is a bummer you have to Google news. That I know isn't great. God, I feel uninformed. Yeah, that I, I although I'm on Twitter and I would not say I'm informed. <laughs> <So> <laughs> usually I have to spend like 15 minutes. I'm like, is this real? Like I have to Google where I'm like, is this a lie? What's fucking happening? Um, but yeah, so right now <laughs> the new thing with AI is people are creating like fan art of celebrities. But it'll be, like, celebrities who don't have, like, real photographs together. Okay. It's, like, people they want to meet or they want to be friends. And it's, like, instead of fan fiction, it's, like, fan art. Oh. Does that make sense? Is that enough when people made fan art without AI? I know. I know. Uh, And it's, because it's AI, it's, like, extra creepy because it really looks like these celebrities and it's not a real photo. And it's just very strange. I just can't imagine spending your time creating art of celebrities who have never met I'm just sort of like intrigued by like who are you why are you doing this um how have we arrived here what is wrong with us etc these are questions I have when it comes to a lot of things related to fan art of different types see I kind of like I understand the way that I understand fan fiction I do understand fan art but there's something so weird about real celebrities like I never liked fan fiction that was about the actors because I think that's crossing a line where it's like okay now I think this is like creepy well it's because you're not taking the characters that have been created that are fictional and making them do things you're taking real people. They're real people. Making fictional versions of them and then making that happen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Tina uh, from Bob's Burgers, her friend fiction. <laughs> like writing, yes. Writing fiction about people you actually know is very weird. Uh, love Tina, but very weird. So, yeah. In, this, in the same way, I'm kind of like, I. it's so, it feels like a violation because like the AI art looks so real that I know... If I was a celebrity and people were creating AI art of me, I would find it creepy. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons why really famous people end up being so private because, you know, and also there's something different to me between the kind of stuff that reminds me of the art that girls would make to go to like a Backstreet Boys concert and the kind of scenarios that get you put on somebody's security watch list as a person to like never be allowed near you. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so no idea how we arrived there, but congratulations, WGA. Obviously, we're going to keep 
ending every episode with Ron until SAG gets a deal too. They are still meeting with the AMPTP and those meetings uh, are going to go into next week. So we'll keep you posted, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, In other strike news, the UAW, <laughs> oh my God. Sean, Sean wore a uh, uh, Eat the Rich shirt. And again, I was like, is this real? I immediately started Googling where I'm like, did somebody Photoshop this? It is real. Uh, President of the UAW wore an Eat the Rich shirt. You've got to love it. And yeah, uh, he's not how you say playing. He's not um, fucking around. No, but he also that not fucking around has led to an in like a truly incredible concession from the automakers already, which is people who work in electric vehicle battery factories are going to be added to the national agreement. Right. Which is huge, huge, especially yeah. like in terms of the future of the industry, mm-hmm. which is like, listen, I don't know how much longer our planet's going to be around, but certainly electric cars are going to be like a huge part of the future if we um, are going to continue to be around as a species. So that's huge already, as you said. Yeah. Um, but it's also just significant because that was something they were willing to give their will probably be very, very contentious negotiations going forward on lots of other demands from the UAW, as it should be, because they need to continue not fucking around. But to actually have a massive expansion of union members that is connected to the future of the industry, these guys are scared. Like the bosses are scared. (laughs) And that's when I start to wonder, like, maybe we talked about this on, I think, last episode. But that's when I start to wonder, like, if maybe the bosses are paying attention to the climate more than we think, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of like we were talking about the WGA strike, but also just organized labor all across the country. If they're sort of like, oh, we better give them what they want because like we are not popular right now. No. People don't we, like us. <laughs> we will be ha- we will have trouble. We are not we're not well liked. <laughs> and I don't mean in terms of like they care how people feel about them cuz I think if you amass that much wealth you're a sociopath and you don't care about people. I mean in terms of they're scared. Where they're like if we push this too far it's like heads under guillotine's time, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean I think they don't care what's going on, but they recognize that they're very thin-skinned. So the idea of being recognizable, I think they all see that there's a chance that their lives could be extremely uncomfortable and going like, to Costco please? will, or, right. you know, you're going to get food, your food is going to get spit in forever and ever. Or like, please <laughs> don't post my address on the internet because like my children live here, you know, yeah. like, that level of aggression towards them, I think, does break through. No matter how rich you are, no matter how removed you are from everyday society, eventually that kind of animosity spills through and you're like, oh, shit. And it's scary. And also, uh, it's good. You should be scared. Yeah. Love um, it. So Diane Feinstein's fucking dead, everybody. She was tragically killed in a skiing accident. Just kidding. She was 800 years old and she finally died. Uh, and she voted. Did she vote the day she died? 
Oh God, I didn't look at that. I It's either uh, the same yeah. day or like the day before. Like she had just voted and then she fucking died. And of course, you know, in addition to talking about her legacy and all that shit, uh, people have started to ask like, should there be an age limit <laughs> for our representatives uh, to serve? And I think yes. And I, fu- and I fully agree. And I know that like it's up for debate what the age limit should be. I do sort of, I've seen people be like, maybe we should have a cognitive test. The only reason I'm not a fan of that is uh, you can cheat on cognitive tests and cognitive tests don't always like when you take a test, it's a very small part of your day. Right. So you might have like a good 15 minutes where you pass that test, but then you, you know, short circuit Mitch McConnell style. And so it's not like a full representation of how you're doing mentally. So I don't think like a test will work, but yeah, like 65. Yeah. And I would actually like, I was talking to someone who made an interesting point, which was, well, I would probably say 70. And their reasoning was specifically that there is institutional and procedural knowledge that it is useful to have experts on. And so as much as you want to say, well, fuck it, if the regular human, you know, if, if Medicare starts at 65 and you already have better health insurance than us, that than GTFO. But I think that having a few years where you know it's coming to an end where you're forced to pass down some of that institutional knowledge and make sure that it continues while you're still sharp enough to be that procedural hammer and expert is kind of a good idea. Yeah. Um, for sure. I was so I was kind of swayed by that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But I do think that that's an argument I would be happy to see overruled if everybody else was like nope. You're done. Yeah, I also think there's probably some gatekeeping going on because they know they can just keep getting reelected that maybe they um, want to seem more indispensable than they are. So that's actually preventing them from sharing that. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think that's 100% a thing. And the idea that it's like how doctors still force other trainee doctors to stay up all night because they had to do it. Like <laughs> right. Mitch McConnell is 90 years old and he, at, before his brain started glitching, um, knew everything about every procedure in the Senate. Right. Um, why would he teach someone how to do that when he has unlimited power because of it? Right. Just, you know, make every, you, know, you have to be the, the sociopath that teaches yourself all of this shit. Right. Whereas if it had been like Mitch, you have a, a hard out when you're 65, perhaps he would have then said, oh, let me train a new terrible Republican. Yeah, because <laughs> I am being forced out. And so therefore, for the good of, for my party to continue to hurt people right. that we deem unworthy, I have to share this knowledge. It, Maximum it forces you to become a little bit less selfish. Right. Because that's what this is. That's what staying in office all these years, that's what Feinstein's decision to not, to, to run again in 2018 was. That was probably a combination of elder abuse and hubris. That's you another know. thing. I think, you know, not to be litigious, but anybody who facilitated this, where it's like her staff, her 
kids, you know, like I do think there was elder abuse and it's because they benefit from that access and that power as well. And that would be another thing that age limits could potentially, you know, not stop elder abuse, but stop kids from propping up their parent weekend at Bernie style so they can- It would reduce the potential for proxy, like power by proxy. That's the thing that was being discussed when Feinstein- was out for so long was these Mm -hmm. questions of why her daughter seemed to have so much influence over what was going on because we didn't elect her daughter or the people of California didn't elect her daughter. Um, But she clearly had an enormous amount of power. Right. So, Um, um, yeah. So guys, I was fortunate enough to attend the New York film festival recently And I'm going to talk about a couple films I saw very, very generally without spoilers because these films do not come out for months and months. And that would be really shitty if I spoiled them for you. So not that either of these films, well, yeah. Anyway, so um, I saw All of Us Strangers and Priscilla. And one I liked a whole lot and the other I liked. And you, my voice had like kind of went up in a little bit of an inflection and I'll explain why in a second. (laughs) But uh, All of Us Strangers uh, is the one with Andrew Scott and Paul Meskel. And it is this very, very beautiful, quiet meditation on uh, memories and grief and loneliness with just absolutely uh, baller performances top to bottom but I really really have to give this film to Andrew Scott I think he could be a serious contender for the Oscars I think it's my favorite performance of his ever which is saying a lot because literally every time he's in anything he's amazing and probably my favorite part of whatever he's in <laughs> whether it's hot priest or anything else he is just like a scene stealer And, uh, but this really, really allowed him to flex the acting muscles. And, uh, as I texted Meredith right afterwards, cause Andrew Haig did, um, the director did, uh, a Q and a right after with the editor of the film. And I texted Meredith where I was like, well, I just cried through that entire film (laughs) (laughs) in like a good way, because, you know, obviously, um, I had heard from a lot of people that it's like a very emotional film and, a lot of people were crying uh, <laughs> at the festivals, but my God, like it really, and it hit me and like, it's one of those wonderful films that it's very universal. So like I was able to connect with it, even though the film ostensibly is about two gay men that like, if you are a person who lives in a city uh, on your own, away from your parents and you are of the age where your friends are getting married and having babies and you're sort of like, hi, (laughs) like you're still kind of just on your own. I think you'll really connect with the movie in a profound way. And I loved it a lot. Oh, I can't wait to see it. I am prepared for it to destroy me and that's okay. I'm ready. Um, I just, I need something that's going to casually crush me. Mike, I mean, Andrew Scott's face in every single shot is just like, oh, God, like I and Claire Foy is fucking amazing. But honestly, the entire cast is incredible. Um, But for me, 
you know, when you're just like watching a film and an actor keeps pulling your attention, even if every and someone else in the scene is having their quote unquote moment, but you keep looking at them, it's like, oh, this is Andrew Scott's movie. He's like so in the pocket right now. Yeah. Oh, can't wait. Um, and the other, the other, you we were telling me last <laughs> night a yeah. little bit. So, uh, Priscilla, Sofia Coppola's new film with Jacob Elordi and Kaylee Spaney. I liked it. I thought that it is so beautiful and artfully directed. And I was so, so grateful that Sofia Coppola was the writer and director telling this story because um, I think she did a really great job of walking this tricky line between honoring the fact that Priscilla had these real feelings of love towards Elvis and sees a lot of positives in her relationship with him. And at the same time, acknowledging this was a very toxic relationship um, and a child romanticizing that toxic relationship. And that's really hard to do, to do those two things at once. And I think she does a pretty masterful job of doing it. I was so grateful, though, that she addressed the fact that Priscilla was 14 when she met him. She was a child. The fact that her mother was incredibly afraid to let her go to this pop star's house at night uh, and was sort of like in this impossible decision where she's like, either I don't let my daughter do this and my daughter never forgives me and cuts me out of her life forever or I let her be trafficked, basically, because eventually she goes to the, to the United States with, uh, they meet in Germany and they go to the United States. So essentially she's like trafficked. <laughs> like, and, and Sophia like honestly examines all of that where it's like, you don't want to be paternalistic in the sense that you're like, you were never in love. You were just a mm-hmm. dumb kid. Cause it's like, no, no, both can be true. Both can be true where she was in love but this was a grown man grooming a 14-year-old. Yeah. And I think it's really wonderful that Sofia Coppola just is always working to tell stories that have young women and teenage girls at the heart of them. She's, I mean, that, that her project is to examine ex- the experiences of teenage girls in a way that gives them agency and also recognizes that the world is set up in a way to take advantage of them. And also how that plays out. Yeah. Also like celebrating what's so wonderful about being a woman. So like her, the female friendship she was able to make because she was like in this very isolated, gated, uh, you know, Graceland, like, community where she didn't make friends with other students but there were other women like in her life that she loved a lot and trusted and but just like her makeup and her perfume and her outfits like there is this cool celebration of like the costumes are beautiful you know of Mm -hmm. the style of Priscilla Presley which was you know iconic and like her hair and the fake lashes like there's so much tender detail in the movie about like she was just a fucking style icon and I I love watching an Elvis film that is about the empowerment of Priscilla leaving Elvis it's not about Elvis's career it's not about you know 
Although you do see a little bit of that, like him <laughs> becoming a pill head and like sleeping till four o'clock in the afternoon. You do see that because you have to fucking see that in an Elvis bio, right? Um, but this is a celebration of Priscilla and you can tell that Sophia is like so proud that she left him mm -hmm. because can you imagine leaving Elvis? Like how, sh even though it was an abusive relationship, even though he was a mess, anybody watching from the outside would be like, what the fuck are you out of your mind? And she was just like, I want my own life. And it's like, you are a boss that you did that. Yeah. I mean, the, it's a story that gets told, I think, but it usually gets broken down into the much simpler component parts when it's anyone who's dealing with a toxic relationship and right. deciding to leave, but especially someone famous, like the moment where the famous rock star gets left by their partner because their drugs and ego have gone out of control is universally always about how it ends up affecting the rock star. Right. Right. <laughs> or, uh, you know, or keeps or, or flattens it to the point where it's about just, oh, well, I'm fed up and now I have to leave. Um, right. And their life doesn't matter. I mean, she went out, like, she divorced Elvis. Elvis died. And then she had a huge part on Dallas. Like, she was She had this whole other life. Yeah. <laughs> she, like, just kept living and, like, had this, like, amazing life after that, which is, again, like, incredible. Um, I've never seen an Elvis film that's so not about Elvis. And that's a huge compliment to the film because I never want to see a movie about Elvis ever again. Like that is my personal <laughs> request to Hollywood. In addition to world war II films and films about the Kennedys, I never want to see another story about this. It's been done. Let's move on. Um, but if we have to have another film about Elvis, this is the kind of film about Elvis I want to see where it's like, you know, obviously Elvis's estate did not sign off on this. They did not allow them to use any of his music and they got around that in very creative, I think, effective ways. But to watch an Elvis film in which there's none of his music was also so interesting because it was like, you know, obviously they had to do that for legal reasons, but it sort of amplified the fact that it was like, right, it's not about him <laughs> like, right. at all. It's about her. That's such an interesting point like what a way to take what other directors might consider to be a really terrible setback and right. turn it into an asset like maybe even a sign we shouldn't do this and Sophia yeah. was like great I'm glad they don't like it because that means I'm on the right track and guess what I'm gonna get a composer to write beautiful music for this film and you're not even gonna miss any of Elvis's songs <laughs> yeah it actually, that reminds me very much of what happened when Todd Haynes made Velvet Goldmine and couldn't right. get Bowie to sign off. So he ended up using a ton of rocks, like he used a bunch of other songs from the period, but ended up going with a shitload of Roxy Music and Brian Eno, uh, or right. and Brian Ferry. Uh, the Being forced to tell the story that you want about real people in a way that deals with the fact that you they don't want you doing it. You can make a trash extravaganza. Ooh, you should you, can, you should pitch that as a a piece somewhere about all the times they couldn't use music, like the actual music. Because yeah. it's so interesting, you know. You could compare it to like I'm not there, where they could use all the Bob Dylan stuff. Like, what is it? And but it happens 
more often than you'd expect. Um, so there's, yeah. And I, I would also, I hope this sort of like encourages other directors, writers to approach biopics from an interesting angle like that, because I truly did not think I would get anything out of yet another Elvis biopic. And I got something out of this because it wasn't about Elvis. <laughs> so like, <laughs> if you're going to do a biopic, like find a fresh angle. Don't just do a straight biopic anymore. They're very rarely successful. Um, yeah, I, but I do recommend it. Um, you know, I had like minor notes about, uh, pacing and length and, and stuff like that. And it was difficult to really get immersed in the story because there was that like creepy predatory aspect to it. Like there were a couple moments that I think were supposed to play as perhaps romantic between Elvis and Priscilla and the audience was laughing uncomfortably because <laughs> mm. again, she's 14, she's 14 she's 14 when they meet. And, um, there's some, like, I think pretty obviously grooming behavior. And I think Sophia is aware of that as well, but it's, you know, it's hard to get invested in a relationship that's, uh, origin is grooming, you know? Yeah. And that there are abusive aspects throughout the film in terms of isolating her in terms of like constantly cheating on her, uh, hitting her, you know, like, it's hard for me to get invested <laughs> in this relationship because it's so bad. And I, but I was so happy at the end when she got out of there. But like, would I want to revisit? Probably not. So I think I gave it three and a half stars on Letterboxd. To me, anything above a three is a recommendation. So uh, yeah, I do recommend Priscilla. Excellent. Um, I have not been watching movies at the film festival <laughs> i've been watching some real trash yeah but also gone to see some stuff i uh i just say go see the creator it is yeah. a flawed movie uh it's gareth edwards who made rogue one mm -hmm. and uh it's the robot genocide movie yeah um, with john david washington and allison janney and ken watanabe but it is really fun it's and I think the goat, I'm, the goat, Greg Frazier, cinematography. Oh, actually, there were two cinematographers ah. because Greg Frazier had to leave to go shoot Dune 2. Yeah, I did, my boy. <laughs> so uh, Gareth Edwards had to bring a second cinematographer in to work on, like, work based on what Frazier had already shot. Um, I saw a fascinating interview that Letterboxd has with Gareth Edwards about the process of figuring out how to have two different cinematographers, but still be true. So he like, before Fraser left, had him kind of start making a Bible for the new guy to come in and make sure that he was doing shots in this way, like figuring out how to keep it consistent. Um, I don't know who was the cinematographer yeah. of this behind the scenes thing I saw, but there's a really cool scene where the lighting was really interesting. And an interviewer was like, how did you get that effect? And they literally put, like a shopping bag over a light. And they're like, huh. sometimes you just do that. Like you, Jerry, you could have like millions and millions of dollars in a budget and you will just Jerry rig something in such a like haphazard sloppy way. And it just works. So they were like, yeah, yeah we put this bag over the light and <laughs> it created this color that like we hadn't seen before because who puts a bag over a light <laughs> yeah that's not how these things are supposed to work <laughs> <laughs> it's incorrect actually it's probably a fire hazard 
Yeah. And, and yet they did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just thought it was an interesting sci-fi adventure. It looks unbelievable. Thank you, Greg Fraser. Um, Because of course I'm going to give him a lot of the credit. As you should. He's the best. The best. But he, uh, it, it looks significantly more expensive Mm. than it is. Yes. While also seeming lived in, it feels like the world feels tangible and even though the story doesn't kind of do a lot, like do anything new or uh, surprising with the story that it's telling, I still felt like it was executed well. The acting was good. I thought John David Washington kind of got the chance to be charming and thoughtful and have hit, use his charisma in a way that he didn't in Tenet. So it was nice to see him. Are you getting to he be wasn't awesome. charming in Malcolm and Marie? <laughs> <laughs> the film that somehow uh, had him and Zendaya seem like they are not good actors, and they are. Uh, yeah. That is a hundred percent Sam Levinson's fault. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but I would. So I think you know. I, I guess I was pleasantly surprised because it got so little advance advertising that I figured it was going to be terrible. And then I went and I really liked it. And I thought, well, gosh, what the hell? This is good. Yeah. I haven't seen it. So obviously I can't comment on it, but what I had heard was that visually it's spectacular. The story is a little like hackneyed and cliche. Yeah. But I also think that it's done so much better than most like than any of the superhero movies that's the like, thing in though it's like it looks, if you're like, talking about hackneyed yeah. and cliche and territory we have been a, a thousand times that's like every marvel film <laughs> so right and at least like also i think a little hackneyed and cliche is okay because gareth edwards is clearly making his project to be like I want to make big budget movies that are really pro freedom fighter and anti fascist. Right. Right. <laughs> so, which is Star Wars, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he, you know, I he mean, does it again here, and the United States Army is they they do full on genocidal war crimes shit. It basically takes every war we've been in since Vietnam and takes little bits of the bad things we did, and we are doing them all. Uh. Cool. I need to check that out. I know that uh, we wanted to talk about Gen V. Yes. And I had I started that this week on your recommendation. Yes. Well, I wanted you to watch it. I did not recommend it. I did not you recommend, didn't recommend it. it. You told me I needed to watch it so we could so talk, we could about, talk it. about it. Yes. Uh, how do you feel? I really, I really like it. I think I'm a sucker for the the creators of the boys, like the Mm -hmm. vibe that they've set up works for me very well. Like some decent comedy. It's very dark. There's some incredibly crazy violence, but it always works well for me. Um, And I think that the focus on the young, you know, the, the main characters, it's way better on mental health stuff than I was expecting. You know, for a superhero, for, even though it's the dark superhero, I'm like, oh, well, I guess this is a more interesting, this is more interesting to me than X-Men stuff. Right. <laughs> I pretty much feel the opposite. I, uh, I don't like it. I 
am going to anti-wreck it. <laughs> and Ooh, we've got a mismatch. Yeah. I I agree with what you were saying about I also like the boys' sensibility, you know, that sort of like dark examination of the marvelification of superheroes and but everything that was like interesting and charming and new about that now feels like very try hard. And there's a scene, everybody, where there's a character who shrinks and uh, she is hugging a guy's dick. And we stay on that shot for a long time. And I was sort of like, I don't find this funny or like shocking enough to be interesting. It just feels like 12 year old boys kind of being like, penises are funny. And I'm like, okay, I guess. <laughs> like, it kind of has like diminishing uh, returns at this point for me because I feel like everything shocking that we could have seen we saw in the boys. So now they're kind of like, how do we step that up? And they've created these two female characters who both of their superpowers come from their suffering. <laughs> so like one cuts herself to bleed and then she can like solidify the blood to become like almost like projectiles or whips and that's like her weapon and the other female character has to throw up to shrink so her power is also tied into her suffering and I understand we wanted to examine puberty and you know uh, how the world abuses women and all of that stuff but I I thought it was so strange to not allow any of the women in this show to have fun with their powers that it had to be like massive suffering they have to suffer every time <laughs> they use their powers and I honestly honestly thought it was very offensive like in terms of self-harm in terms of eating disorders I could tell they were trying to be delicate with it and I know it's really really hard to write about this stuff so I don't want to be glib and like insult anyone because I know everybody works really hard on stuff like this I really thought they missed the mark. I, I do find it very offensive. And see, I completely disagree because I think that every other straight series does the exact same thing. They just are less explicit and more glib about it. So does the same thing like, in terms of exploits the trauma, exploits like the trauma of, of, these superheroes and like decide, you know, it, it, it's always the point of suffering, like not, having, not in terms of yeah. like having to mutilate themselves or in terms of like, there's just something, the fact that it's like so related to a thing that actually so many people struggle with, which is like bulimia, you know, having that be tied into a superpower felt like, Ooh, guys, I, <laughs> I really think we missed the mark on this one. And I, I could tell what they were trying to do. And they thought it was going to be this opportunity to like talk about eating disorders. But, you know, in the boys, we've got like um, a guy who can talk to fish and we've got like a Wonder Woman type character and we've got a guy who's really fast. And it's like all of those characters suffer, you know, at some point during the series and terrible things happen to them. But there's something about the fact like linking it directly to people who cut themselves, people who throw up, um, who have an eating disorder that I was and like, I think that it's just better to just make that stuff. I mean, just make it explicit because 
you know, this is just, it does happen. Um, it does, but do I want to watch it? Like, I, I don't have fun watching these characters use their superpowers. And in a show about superpowers, for me, that's like, you know, a kind oh, of a deal breaker. I, <laughs> I don't think the point is for it to be fun to watch them use their superpowers. And that's why I think both of us have such different opinions. Right, because then like, I'm like, then why would I, do I watch this show? Like, if I'm not enjoying right. watching them use their superpowers. Whereas in, like, yeah. boys, it's like, get these really fun fights. And, like, whenever they do use their superpowers, it's like, it's cool to watch, you know. But this, it's like, so I'm watching two women suffer. Um, and I should say, let me say something positive about it. Um, because the writers are clearly very talented, very good. There are like, especially the first and second episode, really big twists and a very interesting storyline about like what's happening at this sort of like Xavier school for the gifted, um, like the seedy underbelly of that, that I find really interesting. And I thought it was really smart to, have like a mystery aspect to it where it's like we're trying to figure out where certain characters disappeared to and like what's going on at this school and all that stuff felt very new and fresh and not derivative of the boys and that felt like cool and new so I was sort of like oh that's interesting see I like that and I that that is true I just think I'm watching shows like this for a completely different reason than you are because I hate superheroes. Right. Like I'm specifically watching the boys and Gen V because I despise everything about the culture that these movies have brought about. And yeah. But then like to me, it's sort of like, okay, so if we remove all the super hero stuff that we don't care about then we've got like a cw teen drama which is fine but then why are we using the lens of superheroes to tell a story and like i feel like the boys it was like this critique of the corporate culture and like how capitalism would use superheroes for branding and stuff that was really interesting but we've already done all of that so Mm -hmm. now that all feels like diminishing returns because it's like we've already established this world. We know that it's very, you know, jaded and cynical and we examine that with the boys and now it's like, what else can we explore? And so they're like, okay, I guess like influencer culture. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's about like, okay, this is how we plug young people into the capitalist machine. But you could Um, tell they were like, but that's not enough because it's like, (laughs) Okay, so you have this character who's like the most evil person who's ever lived, who uses, pretends to have this friendship with the girl, uh, what's her name? Um, I'm forgetting what the character's name is, the, of the girl. Emma? Emma, no. but she has a nickname. Anyway. Little Cricket. Cricket, yeah. So she pretends to be Cricket's friend and then like uses her for views and like finds out she has an eating disorder. And it's like, okay, so you're the most evil person who's ever lived, but now we've examined that. So it's like, what else are we doing? Um, and that I thought the mystery aspect of it, I was like, this is cool because this feels like a show. <laughs> you know, Like we have a question, we need an answer. There's all of these different motives about why we're keeping this secret. So I'll probably keep watching because, like, I want to know. And I don't want to give away spoilers because it uh, involves, you know, um, some central characters on the show. But I'm, like, very invested in the mystery of it. So that, to me, was the interesting part. But, yeah, I'm kind of, like, 
Yeah, I I'm less enthused about it. And I really I don't know. I think I'm going to keep watching, but I'm kind of like, oh, God, at the idea. <laughs> well, you can always take a break and yeah. I'll tell you. Uh, I can tell you if how it's it worth going. it to keep going. Yeah. yeah. I, you know who I really miss and who I didn't realize? Maybe I realized, but I was kind of like, God, Anthony Starr really carried the boys. <laughs> oh, that is. That's why I got very excited to see that Patrick Schwarzenegger was Uh uh, when I watched the first episode Uh because he has similar sociopath energy. I thought he was great, by the way. Like I, I really, I also thought that character is very cool because like they made him not Homelander because he like genuinely loves people. And I thought that was really interesting. Like he really, really like loves his family and he like loves his friends. And I was like, oh, there's like this good heart to him. That was really interesting. Um, Yeah. But yeah, Homelander, I mean, first of all, Homelander is one of the greatest villains ever, maybe ever. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. He's so scary. Um, And Anthony Starr is just fucking brilliant at playing him. And to me, that was like, if you're going to take on the archetype of superhero you have to take down captain america and nobody took down captain america harder than anthony star <laughs> playing <laughs> homelander he is so scary and it is just an indictment of everything not only that character stands for but like again the whole like corporatization of superheroes and i really miss his presence and so far, mind you, it's only been three episodes. Nobody has touched that performance. So it's kind of like I am less invested. And that's okay. Um, kind of similarly, I can't give like a full endorsement to this, obviously, because there's only been the premiere. But uh, the Loki premiere was great. I really, really enjoyed it. It was so wonderful to have all of my favorites back on screen. I could watch Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson talk forever. Um, they were so great. And our homies, Benson and Moorhead, directed. Which I'm so excited for them. I am not watching this. No, no, no. Probably. And like, <laughs> but you know, you were I'm so funny. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Meredith, Meredith texted me and was like, just so you know, I'm not going to watch Loki. And I was like, I did not think for a second you were going to watch Loki. <laughs> <laughs> no boy, did I think you were going to watch Loki. Um, but I also wanted to give it up to uh, Kihu Kwan, who is OB in the premiere. And he is so fucking adorable and engaging and just absolutely crushes it. Uh, and yeah, it was basically like, oh, and uh, uh, Wunmi Mosaku is wonderful. And it's basically like those four characters in the the pilot. And I was like, very, very glad. I feel like, especially Loki, but Marvel in general, when they shrink what they're trying to do and just make a character piece is when they are the most successful. So the other time this worked was in Winter Soldier when we just had Captain America and Bucky. To me, that was the most effective character development they've had possibly since then. I mean, other than like Tony and Steve maybe. But yeah, when they go back to basics, when we make it small, when not every single thing is about saving the universe, 
Although Loki is too, I guess. But, you know, you have these quiet moments. And Mm -hmm. whenever... Letting the characters breathe. Letting them breathe, having actual sets and beautiful set design, which Loki is, like, known for. Uh, I love that. I love when you can tell the characters or the actors are actually on a physical set. They actually have props that, like, somebody built, you know? And it helps them, too. Like, they act so much better when they're not in front of a fucking green screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows them to actually feel comfortable when they have to act against each other, which is so important and yet somehow doesn't get done in these shows. Um, yeah. And I will say I, li- I did enjoy the first season when I did eventually watch it. I'm just planning to wait until every episode is out and yeah, I think- no one is talking about it anymore before I find a way to watch it. Yeah. And I think like... <laughs> I know the pilot got a lot of enthusiasm and then it cooled off a little with like episode two and three. So I'm interested to see like what happens with that. But um, yeah, I think especially if you're not like super hardcore in a Loki, binging it is the way to go because you're not going to follow week to week, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was going to say something else about, oh, uh, did you have any other recommendations? I want to lukewarm recommend VHS 85. Um, which I watched last night and is on Shutter. Uh, this one, it's the latest installment in the VHS series. So it is all uh, it is shorts by different directors. Many of them were okay. <laughs> um, I mean, there were a couple that I just did not care for. Okay, and there were a couple that I actually really thought were well done. Um, and the directors in this one are, uh, people that you have seen before. Um, uh, the director of the black phone, sinister, the director of lucky Natasha Kermani, the film where Bria Grant gets killed by a mysterious man every night. Right. Um, I thought, Hers, I thought, was very interestingly done. The, the the one by the guy who directed Sinister felt very much like he needs to get a new, um, he needs to get a new shtick because mm-hmm. it felt like, oh, I'm this is the one by the guy from Sinister because everything's kind of grainy. It's starting to look like a film strip, and there's some creepy ambient music right. hanging around. Cool. Okay, I know what's going on here, um, but I appreciated that the stories were more coherent. So there, uh, there were a couple that I really liked. The first one called No Wake uh, was creepy, was very, very creepy. So there was, you know, there was enough about it that I really thought was fun that I would say it's worth watching for as a spooky season thing. So much better than VHS 99 by oh great leaps and bounds like way 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 better i had had this on my list just because uh the big picture did their horror oscars and they were talking about it a little bit and they similarly recommended it where they were kind of like it's hit or miss it's definitely stronger than the other ones um or 99 at least So, yeah, I will definitely check it out. I sort of, like, go into watching the VHSs with the assumption that it'll be a mixed bag anyway. So Mm -hmm. I fully always expect there to be some duds. 
Yeah. This one, I, I felt the they did a better job with the framing device as far as like said, it just weaves together a little bit better than some of the others. And um, the only time it drives yeah. me nuts is when the year is clearly wrong. Right. And it, they just get things wrong, like the fashion or the music. And I'm just like, guys, like the bare minimum is like if you're doing a 99, it's got to be like correct 99 fashion and music. <laughs> yeah. And that was a very big problem. This yeah. one is a little bit better because it, this one does a better job with that. It feels much more correct. And it, like the vibe works. Um and you can identify what they're going for. It tends to be like things are on video, but you can identify the things that I could identify stuff from like the couple of years prior that would have led to this story happening in that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that made me happy when I was like, especially in Kermani's, I was like, okay, cool. This is like interesting. She has, it's sort of like performance art and Tron. Oh, okay. Um, so, like, if you've ever walked into an almost empty performance show, like, performance art show on the Lower East Side. Uh-huh, you know I have. Um, you will feel this very strongly. Amazing. <laughs> I'm going to check it out. Uh, guys, on that note, we're going to wrap things up because I'm going to yet another movie. I'm seeing Dick's the Musical today, so I will have a review of that next episode. Although you can see my reviews early if you follow me on Instagram or Letterboxd. You can also follow Meredith on uh, the same and also Blue Sky. We're both there. And I am still on Twitter. I can't really recommend following me there because the ship is sinking. And I don't know if you should get on board at this point. But follow us literally everywhere else. And on that note, until the SAG strike is over, here's Ron. The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful, because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out.